the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Situation Report today. Glad to have you joining me. Hope you are having a great week. This is the show where we do our best to give you the information and perspectives you need to navigate an ever-changing culture. My name is Jeremy Stalnecker. I am your host today. And today we are going to continue a conversation we've been having for the last few days on the Supreme Court and more broadly the rulings of the Supreme Court recently. We've got a great guest on. I look forward to sharing this interview uh, with you, with my guest, Josh Hammer. Josh has been on in the past. In fact, uh, probably one of my favorite episodes of this show was my first interview with Josh where we talked about masculinity and what it means to be masculine. He is smart. He's articulate. I uh, love talking to him. And we're going to talk about the Supreme Court a little bit today. But he wrote an article this last week for Newsweek. He is the opinion editor at Newsweek. And the title of the article is this, The Greatest Living American Issues His Career-Defining Court Opinion. The Greatest Living American. He's talking of Justice Clarence Thomas and the opinion that he uh, wrote, issued, on uh, what took place in New York, the gun decision, Second Amendment decision that was made in New York. And Josh is going to break that down for us and talk about it. But this caused me to think about what it is to be a great American. And as we look at the Supreme Court and the rulings of the Supreme Court, and really, um, honestly, the courage with which the Supreme Court has stood up and made some very hard, very important decisions over the last couple of weeks, uh, talking about or reflecting on what it means to be American, and then adding that word great on the front of it is an important, I, I believe, conversation for us to have, certainly an important um, exercise for us to go through. What does it mean to be a great American? I, I'll tell you, and I've, I've mentioned this over the last couple of weeks, I have been disappointed with the Supreme Court in the last several months. When we looked at some of the appointments to the Supreme Court, we looked at uh, some of the folks that came on to the Supreme Court. We, as conservatives, finally uh, looked at the court and said, we have a conservative court. We have a court that's going to rule, make decisions that are consistent with the wording and the intent of the U.S. Constitution. And to me, that's what it means to have a conservative court, by the way. Uh, this is not conservative in terms of liberal and conservative, as in left and right, Republican and Democrat. We should not view the court that way. In fact, we shouldn't view conservatism that way. Conservatism really fundamentally is about conserving. It's about maintaining uh, those first principles, going back to the Constitution that came out of the statements of the Declaration, understanding what our founding fathers intended as they penned these words, and then with their own lives, property, and fortune, defended these words as they grabbed for us, as they declared and then took by force freedom and our ability to exercise our God-given sovereignty. Uh, this is what it means to be conservative. I think often this is why conservatives are late to the party, because we are about conserving and maintaining, and often that requires going on the offense. Again, as Josh will talk about in this interview today, 
but we are so often more about defending. Um, But as conservatives, it is our job to maintain the standards set forth by the Constitution of the United States. When we look at a court and we say that is a conservative court, what we should mean is not that the people on the court have conservative, as in Republican, leanings or beliefs, but that they believe that the Constitution should guide our public discourse, our public thought, and our public policy. And when I look at the decisions that have been made by the Supreme Court in the last few months, there has been disappointment. Some of the things they have decided to waive off, I've been disappointed. But over the last couple of weeks, man, oh man, some of these decisions. Uh, we could look at the decision regarding Roe versus Wade, the Second Amendment decision that we'll talk about uh, in this interview. Other decisions regarding prayer in school and e- even the ability of parents to take funds and apply those to Christian uh, schools for their children, this idea of school choice for their kids. These decisions have been absolutely amazing and wrapped in the language of the United States Constitution. I'm so thankful for that. I'm thankful for Americans sitting on the Supreme Court who understand what what the Constitution is and what their job as jurors is as it relates to issuing uh, these decisions. And for me as an American to hang on to these principles, to hang on to these values and to live my life according to them. What is it that makes someone great? Today we're going to talk about the Supreme Court, the decisions they've made, why these decisions are important, what they will mean. We're going to talk about Clarence Thomas and what his life has been about and then end today by having a discussion on what it means to be a great American. Appreciate you joining me today. I know that this is going to be a conversation, an interview that you will enjoy, that you will learn from, and that you will want to share with others. Please enjoy this conversation with Josh Hammer. Great to have back on with us Josh Hammer. Josh is the opinion editor at Newsweek, host of the Josh Hammer Show, a syndicated columnist and research fellow with the Edmund Burke Foundation. Josh, thanks for coming back on with us. It's been a very exciting week in the court, so thanks for uh, coming on and talking. It's been a remarkable week and a half, a week and a half unlike any other in my adult lifetime as far as the Supreme Court is concerned. So happy happy to spread the good word wherever I can. It, thanks for having me. It's been amazing. I... Um, Maybe like many people, two months ago, if you asked me about the Supreme Court, I would have expressed complete disappointment. I had so many high expectations, so many high hopes. I expected so many things to happen and nothing's happening. And in the last two weeks, uh, man alive, they've been on a tear. And it's been for conservatives. And, uh, you know, obviously there's another side that hates what's happening. But for conservatives, it's been an unbelievable couple of weeks. Yeah, it really has been. Um, Look, I mean... I'm a lawyer. I came of kind of maturity. I came kind of of age in the in the legal conservative movement. I've been a car carrying member of the Federal Society, which is kind of the leading legal conservative institution. Since my first year of law school at the yep. University of Chicago in 2013, I still kind of do a lot of law school lectures through FedSoc. So this is what the movement has been working yeah. towards. Yeah. I mean, the over- I cannot overstate the point enough. The overturning of Roe versus Wade and its successor case, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, this has been the goal for 40 years. And then you throw on top everything else. I mean, a massive Second Amendment ruling yep. in the Bruin case of New York State, this wonderful Clarence Thomas majority opinion that, that finally, for the first time, says <laughs> that you don't just have a right to keep arms, but to actually bear them. Yeah. The word bear yeah. in, in the text means what it says. Yeah. Then you have these 
two huge wins for religious liberty, a case called Carson versus Macon out of Maine and the Coach Kennedy case out of Washington State. We finally overturned an egregious 1971 Establishment Clause First Amendment case called Lemon versus Kurtzman. They have formally now said Lemon is gone. In any other term, in any other term, each of those cases, yeah. the Second Amendment yeah. case or the religious liberty, would be like the marquee case. Yeah, right. But, but, he, but here, obviously, the big story of all, obviously, is Roe versus Wade is entering the ash heap of history. So it, it's really been a remarkable stretch. I think for a lot of people like myself who, who like you, I think, tend to be a little more pessimistic or cynical about, our, about all things judicial branch related, mm. we're having to kind of reevaluate a little bit, I think, right now. Yeah, they have really come through. Um, what, what's been not surprising but disappointing to me has been the response from those who uh, will say they're on the left. I, I don't know what all that means anymore. Things have changed so much. <laughs> the line has shifted so much. Who knows who's where, right? But um, there's an article on MSNBC, I think it was yesterday, um, see the date here, June 30th, by Jahan Jones. And it, it's, it, it starts out this way. This, these were the Supreme Court's most disastrous rulings this term. It was the, uh, the court's most anti-democratic term in decades. We assess the damage, but we can't afford to sulk. It's time for defiance. And then he goes through and breaks down all of the categories of decisions that were made. Um, he talks about the religious liberty Categories. He talks about, um, you know, the various functional decisions that were made. But a statement that he makes in there is the Supreme Court this term has handed down rulings that functionally dragged the U.S. back to an era where old, white, rapacious Christian men controlled everything. And obviously, this has been the trope of those on the left, but we see rioting in the streets. What's been remarkable to me, almost comically remarkable, if it wasn't so sad, is um, anti. Supreme Court uh, riots in places like Los Angeles, where nothing is going to change. If anything, um, they're going to bear down on uh, abortion rights. Uh, what do you make of all of this? Is it is it posturing? Is it about the election? What, why why is there so much anger and vitriol on the left? So there's a lot that I make about this. The first thing is I have to emphasize. And I made this point on a Fox Business hit earlier. When the left talks about our democracy, oh, our democracy yeah. is in danger, yeah. our democracy, what they're really trying to say is that liberal progressive policy positions are in danger. Right. That's literally the only logical way that you can possibly understand it. Because I viewed another way, what happened in the Dobbs abortion case is the most fundamentally democratizing thing that could possibly happen. They have stripped abortion of, of having a faux constitutional right, of yep. being enveloped in the cloth of an erroneous interpretation of the 14th Amendment, and they have kicked it back to the people to vote their conscience on a state-by-state. State. Mm. It, it, it is a very yeah. lowercase d democratic decision. So when they say our democracy, they don't actually mean democracy. They literally are just trying to conflate whatever kind of means, whether it's a judicial means, a legislative means, or an executive means, with their preferred ends. They, it, it is total conflation of means and ends. That's all they care about. Yeah. But the other thing going on here, to your point, is that, yes, we are in a midterm election year. Joe Biden is currently 19 to 20 points underwater in the job approval rating and the real clear politics average. Democrats are looking at possibly historic wipeouts right now. I mean, they're going to get their clocks cleaned. Republicans are all but assuredly going to take over the House. They will all but assuredly, in my estimation, take over the Senate as well here. So at this point... President Biden is basically, especially this latest nonsense with respect to trying to kind of end the filibuster yeah. to codify yeah. abortion rights. Yeah. I, I, at this point, they're just trying to throw mud at the wall and seeing what sticks. Because at this point, he is nearing the end of time. November is really not that long uh, far from now as far as politics is concerned. So he's really just kind of flagging around with his arms up, just trying to see what will stick at this point. But one other thing that I think is interesting to note 
when President Biden gave these recent comments about trying to break the Senate filibuster to codify Roe versus Wade, he gave those remarks from Madrid, Spain yeah, at, a NATO, yeah. at a NATO summit. Yeah. I think that's very, very, very interesting, mm. right? Because it says a lot that he feels like he can kind of impugn America yeah. from abroad. Yeah. It, you know, in a, in a better day and age, there was this famous quip from a Republican senator back in like the 30s or 40s where he used to say politics, I'm, 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 I don't have the exact quote here, but politics stops at the water's edge. Mm. Put another way, when we go abroad, yeah. we're Americans, we're yeah. not Republicans or Democrats. Joe Biden does not agree with that, though. So I think that says a lot about who he is as a human being as well, frankly. As you know, our friend Mike Lindell has a passion to help everyone get the best sleep of your life. He didn't stop by simply creating the best pillow. Now Mike has done it again by introducing his My Slippers. For a limited time, you will save $90 on a pair of My Slippers. This blowout sale of the year won't last, so order now. Mike has taken two years to develop the My Slippers, and they are designed to wear both indoor and out all day long. Made with My Pillow foam and Impact Gel to help prevent fatigue, they are also made with quality leather suede. Call 1-800-870-0283, use the promo code SITREP, or go to MyPillow.com, click on the radio listener square, and use promo code SITREP. This offer will not last long, so order now with promo code SITREP at MyPillow.com. Can you give us a quick class on what the Supreme Court is supposed to do? I, I think it's become so partisan, this body. And, and again, as a conservative, if, if it was a liberal court right now, and it has been for you know forever, um, I'd be upset about the decisions that, you know, we, we can stipulate that. But the, the role of the Supreme Court, I think, is one that has been so um, muddied, so misconstrued, uh, mis- misconstrued, I don't speak well, Miscon- <laughs> You know what I mean? It's been messed up um, and misexplained that uh, people really do see it as a left versus right, uh, your side versus my side. I'm glad my guys are on the Supreme Court so I can get what I want. But really, that's not the role of the Supreme Court. Can, can you give us a class real quick on what, what they're supposed to do and whether or not in your evaluation, that's what we've seen happen? Sure. So look, Alexander Hamilton in Federal 78 refers to the judiciary famously as the quote-unquote least dangerous of the three branches because it does not have the power to enforce even its own judgments. Mm. It has neither force nor will in his estimation. In fact, the judiciary is quite literally reliant upon Article 2, the executive branch, the presidency, and the Department of Justice to actually enforce its judgments. I would take that even a step further, actually, because, you know, I I am a lawyer. I, I wrote a law review article two years ago on the topic of judicial supremacy, which is this erroneous modern notion that the U.S. Supreme Court kind of makes the rules that binds all Americans. But the better conception of the stretch of the judicial powers actually, formally speaking, is actually, strictly speaking, is actually only technically limited to the parties in the case before it, Mm. in a case or controversy properly before the court. Now, generally speaking, those judgments should be respected as as far as the ruling is concerned for non-parties on basic norms of kind of comedy and civility. But very strictly speaking, the the judiciary in our system of governance has by far probably the most limited power with respect to the separation of powers framing. Now, I should caveat that by saying that I I, I have a new column out of Newsweek where I'm the op-ed editor where I'm basically trying to urge legal conservatives to, within their constitu- 
from from the starting point of within their constitutional confines, going on offense a little bit more. As, mm-hmm. and, and, I, and I've actually been kind of on the front lines for the past two years of outlining what a slightly more assertive, offensive-minded jurisprudence might actually look like. Um, but having said that, it does operate from this basic framework that the judiciary is by far the least dangerous branch compared yeah. to the Congress and the executive branch. Yeah. When you hear people like Merrick Garland saying um, that he is, as the representative of the federal government, not going to enforce these rulings from the Supreme Court, you hear others talking about fighting back, pushing back on these rulings from the Supreme Court, very high-level people, members of Congress. Um, what do you make of that, and how do we see uh, these rulings enforced then? If the Supreme Court does not have the ability to do that on their own, uh, what functionally can happen to make sure that what they've ruled actually takes place? Really not much, I mean, to be honest with you. So, I mean, again, like the executive branch and specifically kind of the U.S. Marshals and the Department of Justice, as far as kind of the federal courts are concerned, yeah. you know, the district courts, the courts with people in the U.S. Supreme Court, they are responsible. I mean, the U.S. Supreme Court, the nine justices are not going to go out there on horseback and try to kind of sure, round up people sure. for violating laws. I mean, that's, that's, <laughs> that's, just, that's kind of just simply not how it works. Although it would be great if they did. I'd love to see that, but it will not happen. Yeah, no, look, I mean, like, I, 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 the idea of Clarence Thomas riding horseback, you know, you know, carrying like a little, like, six-shooter revolver, that's a pretty funny image. In his robe? Do. In his robe, I think it would be great, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, look, I mean— this is not the first time, obviously, that a court ruling has come out that has disappointed a president of the United States. I mean, famously, famously in 1831 or 1832, when Andrew Jackson was was president, Chief Justice John Marshall um, issued a ruling in a case that pertained to to the Cherokee Indians. I think I think that was a fact pattern out of the state of Georgia, if I recall the facts correctly here. And what happened at that time was Andrew Jackson issued a statement, and the actual statement, it's been misquoted a little bit, but the effect of what he said was, and this is not exactly what he said, but it was the effect, he basically said, John Marshall has made his ruling, now let him enforce it. Hmm. Um, Now, famously speaking, actually, I I should know that as a historical matter, this does not necessarily always result in a bad thing. So, for example, Abraham Lincoln, in his first inaugural address in 1861, famously said that with respect to the Dred Scott decision, the worst decision in the history of the Supreme Court, at least until Roe versus Wade was concerned, that with respect to the Dred Scott decision, Abraham Lincoln said that he would not actually abide by the ruling except for Dred Scott himself. So there is some there is something called prudence. You know, right. norms of prudence can dictate when to respect a ruling and when not to. Right. But I think in the current situation, given how violent the left is, given how much they're rioting, the firebombing, yeah. the crisis printing yeah. centers, the fact that they literally burned down half of America right. in the summer of love in 2020, two years ago, <laughs> I think right. they're quite literally playing with fire as a matter of basic prudence as far as the current rhetoric and environment is concerned. It, it seems to me that even the optics of that, again, as the Democrats continue to overreach, they have overreached in, in this area. Because I don't, I don't think most Americans agree with them, or at least most Americans are much more moderate than they are. And, and right. so it, it seems like this complete denial or rejection of the Supreme Court is not something that most in the voting bloc uh, will go along with. It, it, it seems outrageous to me. Um, but to see people take the positions they have, particularly on abortion, uh, again, as a conservative, more as a Christian than a conservative. Uh, it's been very disheartening to me. And it's, it's been heartbreaking to me, to be honest. Uh, images of uh, very pregnant women with writing on their stomachs, this is not a human yet. And the other theater we've seen has been absolutely um, heartbreaking. It's immoral. What do we do? And I, I heard you talk on your own show with uh, Glenn Beck about how we regain the high ground. I don't think that's how you said it, but uh, that was the gist of it. 
Uh, one of the things I think we've done a horrible job of as conservatives is communicating why this is the right position, why Roe should go away, not from a legal or even a faith position as much as just a matter of respect for human life and those kind of things. But we have a generation of people now that have grown up with this being the standard. So this is just normal. This is how it is. This is this is what's right. How do we regain um, the high ground? I, I talked to Ron Coleman yesterday. I don't know if you know Ron Coleman, but uh, talked to Ron, Ron Coleman yesterday. I said, how do we regain the high ground? He said, we don't have to regain it. We already have it. It is the high ground. Um, so I won't say it that way, but how do we get to a place where we are clearly communicating what is right, what is true, and doing so in a way that's effectively leading people forward? Yeah, great question. And, and, and Ron's a great guy. Funny enough, I'm actually going on his podcast later today as oh, well. Awesome. So, I, 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 so I, I, I love Ron. Yeah. So look, I mean, to your question, I mean, we better figure this out sooner rather than later, because quite literally, this issue is now, you know, it's up to the voters. It's up yeah. to the voters. It's up, it's, up to the, it's up to the legislatures in the 50 states. And this now becomes a battle, not per se, of the law. There is a, there is a legal element for the future of the pro-life fight. Uh, we can get to that if you want to. But, the, but for now, the future resides in the 50 states, in, in the right. state legislatures, in the, in the state capitals, in the lobby groups. So we have to mobilize. We have to do so very effectively. And we have to do so very quickly. Now, I do think it is worth pointing out, because I'm obviously also pro-life on, on this underlying substantive issue, Henry Olson, who's one of my favorite columnists, um, he's from the Ethics and Public Policy Center think tank, and he writes for the Washington Post. He had a column recently where he basically was urging his fellow pro-lifers to remember that as we enter this great battle of hearts and minds that the court has now allowed us to enter by democratizing the result, we should bear in mind that the current Gallup-Pew public polling is firmly on our side as far mm-hmm. as second and third trimester abortions are concerned. But as far as the first trimester, we are actually in the polling minority. And, and admittedly, I don't take that for a whole lot, but it's worth bearing in mind. So right. we have to at least go there with empathy, especially for people who come to this with the closest thing that you can have to a good faith argument when right. it comes to aborting an unborn child, which is a difficult thing to have good faith, obviously, about. But we, I, I think in a situation like this, because I've been through the pro-life fights. I was vice president of Law Students for Life, University of Chicago. I've had any number of conversations with pro-choice, pro-abortion, friends, colleagues, whatever. In my personal experience, the best way to do this is to try to stay calm and composed, something that I have not necessarily always done the best of in the past. <laughs> I'm, trying to, I'm trying to do a better job of moving forward. So, put, so broken down the concrete terms, I think saying to someone like, oh, you're like a horrific baby-killing genocidal murderer, that's probably not the best right. way to go about winning. Not a great opening argument. line. Not a great opening line. The better way to do that is to just make a, a, a sober, measured, reasoned, rational case that this is a human life, which we actually know to be the case. Yeah. Because as my friend Steve Jacobs compiled in his dissertation of the University of Chicago a couple of years ago, he did a global survey of like, four or 5,000 embryologists, biologists around the world, I think it was like 95 to 96% of them said they agree that life begins at fertilization because mm. there's just, there was simply no other way given the current state of embryology to identify yeah. when a unique human being is formed. Yeah. So we have to, I think, just to go th- about this in kind of sober, measured fashion, probably just not kind of attack people, at, at least as far as, you know, early term abortions are concerned. I, I, I think all the... It's all off as far as like the monsters who would you know go ahead and abort eight nine month year old unborn children. Yeah. That is truly evil. But at least as far as kind of the the first term early stage abortions, which as a percentage is the vast majority in America, I think we need to kind of just be happy warriors and go about this more sobered and measured. I um I have long been of the opinion that people who are pro choice 
can't be reasoned with. <laughs> Again, I, I am very cynical, but um, you know, this has been my life and trying to have these conversations. And it's it's one of those either you get it or you don't. A few weeks ago, I had the opportunity to interview Naomi Wolf, which uh, I, you, you may know she is. Uh, she wrote the book um, "The Beauty Myth." She's a well-known feminist. She is very outspoken, pro-choice, and uh, we we talked about a, a number of things. But on the abortion issue, she talked about how her her view of Roe has changed over the years and how just applying intellectual acumen and considering the facts and understanding science has caused her to see second and third trimester abortions as something that we should not engage in. And this is someone who's been on the front line of this. And so uh, certainly I think if we can approach it correctly and intellectually and make a sound argument then the people who aren't out on the street screaming and, and, and doing the, the nonsense that we see, they will move. They will adjust because it just makes sense. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, there are all sorts of websites now that kind of show you exactly how the unborn child is developing on like a week-by-week, month-by-month yeah. basis. I mean, we know that there's usually a fetal heartbeat detectable roughly around six to eight weeks yeah. into a pregnancy. I think six weeks is kind of the generally accepted number at this point. Uh, that's why that's why Texas's fetal heartbeat law that went into, uh, into place last September or last October basically had the effect of banning abortions after six weeks in particular. And, you know, uh, th- that should be an obvious indication, right. obviously, right. for anyone who has like an iota of basic human uh, feelings in his right. or her DNA, that that is clearly a human being. I mean, what else would a beating physical heartbeat possibly be? So from there, from six weeks to, you know, a fertile a fertilized egg, you know, I, I, look, I, I guess that is where we need to kind of focus the argument. But look, I, at, the, at the end of the day here, a few things have to happen. There has to be a shift in the culture, okay? And this right. obviously, as you, as you know, this is like a big deal. I mean, look, I, I went to Duke University, I mean, which, you know, was surrounded by kind of very wealthy, oftentimes kind of like promiscuous people. <laughs> right. And like, yeah, I have seen what hookup culture looks like. So, you know, I've, I, I've seen some headlines over the, over, the, over the past week or so since the Dobbs ruling came out where some, where some people are saying like, I'm going on a sex strike or mm. I'm not gonna like sleep around. And my response to that is like, good. <laughs> it's like, about like, time. <laughs> like, like that's good. Like right. hookup culture is a bad thing. Right. It's had extremely harmful, yeah. destructive results as far as children born out of wedlock, the yep. degradation of marriage and family. Yep. So uh, that's a very, very good thing as far as I'm concerned. And it's also a very interesting reminder too, you know, Andrew Breitbart famously said that politics is downstream of culture. In my estimation, though, he only got that half right, actually. Mm. I think that culture can be downstream of law. And that law, whether it's legislation or even to a limited extent, even judicial rulings, and Dobbs is a a good example of that, can actually nudge the culture in in the right direction as well. So to the extent that that is happening, I obviously wholly, wholly welcome that development. What do you see as the next fight? You alluded to the legal battle that's in front of... um you know, those proponents of life. <laughs> what does that look like? What can we expect in the future? Yeah, so I've been pretty outspoken over the, over the past few years that I actually don't think an argument along the lines of Dobbs goes far enough. Now, let me caveat that by saying it's an incredible opinion, and we should be obviously extremely yep. joyful, as I said at the beginning of the show here. But, uh, you know, I wrote an essay for The Spectator in May, a couple of weeks after the leaked opinion from Justice Alito came out. And the, the, the title, you know, the editor chose the title, it wasn't me. It was a little cheeky. It was, <laughs> the title was, Why the Alito Opinion is Too Normy. And, you know, it's a, it, it, it's a cheeky title, but I basically stand by it, actually, for what it's worth. Because in my estimation, the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, and I'm, I am not the only person to make this argument. John Finnis, the esteemed natural law philosopher, has made this argument. Robbie George, the 
prolific professor at Princeton University. My good friend Josh Craddock has made this argument at great length. What we argue is that a proper understanding of the word person in the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment was actually understood at the time of ratification of the 14th Amendment in, in 1868 to include all natural human beings, which at the time meant including unborn children. What that means, practically speaking, is that a state's homicide statute cannot protect born people but not unborn mm. people because that would fail to or that would violate yep. the equal protection clause. Yep. It would not equally protect all human beings under the homicide statutes. So that is the next legal yeah. fight. I am not particularly optimistic, to put it mildly, that the current votes on the Supreme Court are there. But that is, I think, where we have to go as a movement to kind of just trying to push this argument, even on a state-by-state basis. Because ultimately, I think that is how, whether it comes from Congress or the Supreme Court, that is ultimately how abortion gets abolished in America, I think. Clarence Thomas um, seemed to open the door or at least indicate that it could be open for other things like same-sex marriage and some of the other um, issues that, that people like me would be concerned about. Uh, what was he doing there? Was that a signal that it could happen? Was it just him saying he would like to see it happen? Um, we'll talk more about Clarence Thomas going forward, but uh, what does that mean, if anything, and does this open the door for other decisions to be made? So it's very interesting to me that this seven-page concurrence from Justice Thomas in the Dobbs case has gotten the attention yeah. that it has. And it sure has. The, the, it, it really has. This is absolutely nothing that Justice Thomas has not said for 30 years. Right, I mean, he, sure. He, he celebrated his 30-year anniversary on the U.S. Supreme Court last fall. He has been admirably, remarkably consistent mm. in his utterly excoriating the faux <laughs> constitutional doctrine known as, quote-unquote, substantive due process. So substantive due process, um, you know, if, if it sounds like an oxymoron, that's because it is. They basically take the due process clause of the 5th and 14th Amendment, which clearly only requires process before life, liberty, or property is deprived, and they basically read that liberty is entailing some sort of substantive component. Mm. So put another way, there are certain fundamental liberties that no matter what process you put in, You simply cannot infringe upon it. The problem is not necessarily at the level of theory, although it is an utterly bizarre reading of the actual text. The the other problem is just what the court has done to weaponize this doctrine over the years. They they have fabricated all sorts of rights, the the rights that Justice Thomas alludes to in this concurrence. Uh, You know, kind of the original sin, really, of Roe versus Wade Mm -hmm. was this 1965 case called Griswold versus Connecticut, which involved contraception. And I'm not trying to ban contraception as a policy matter. I, I, on, on the contrary, I actually am of the belief that uh, we probably should make it more widely available, actually, if we want to limit abortions. That, that, that's, a, that's a tangential conversation. But what he is saying is that the so-called right to privacy that emanated from that decision had no constitutional standing whatsoever. Now, what he is doing here is just doing what Clarence Thomas always does. He is taking a remarkably principled, consistent position. Clarence Thomas's views on the Constitution, as he elaborated in a, in a 2019 case called Gamble versus the United States, yeah. is that his view of precedent is that when the Constitution says one thing and precedent says another, you go with the Constitution, right. period, full right. stop, end of story. Yeah. That is not necessarily the view of precedent stare decisis that even most of the other conservative justices have. They tend to be a little more moderate or more measured on that question. Justices like Kavanaugh, Amy Coney Barrett, even the late Justice Antonin Scalia mm. actually did not agree with Justice Thomas on the question of stare decisis. But Justice Thomas basically says substantive due process is made up because it is. Hmm. And he basically says that our oath of office requires us to uphold the Constitution, not erroneous judicial precedent yeah. that comes after the Constitution. 
by the way, I agree with him on that as well. And if you put two and two together, that means we have to revisit all these other cases. But it's worth noting as a practical matter that not a single other justice joined that concurrence. Not right. even Neil Gorsuch, actually, who's actually who's the closest to Thomas on the question of stare decisis. So I think Thomas is kind of just staking out a very principled high ground here. Right. He's likely he's likely writing for for law students, honestly. If I had to guess more than anyone else. There's extremely, extremely low chance that any of this happens. I mean, one thing that you know, the Supreme Court has a discretionary docket. They get to choose what cases they hear. I mean, it's just totally inconceivable that they would ever agree to hear a case if a bill banned contraception, which right. it wouldn't happen. I mean, like, what's show me a state that's going right, to do that. Sure. <laughs> so right, sure. So a lot of this is just pure academia, writing for law students, things like that. Yeah. Um, you wrote uh, an opinion piece um, in Newsweek called The Greatest Living American Issues His Career-Defining Court Opinion. Um, great, uh, great article. Um, talk about Clarence Thomas, why you believe he's the greatest living American, and then, uh, if you would, break down his opinion on, uh, on the gun decision in New York. Yeah, so Clarence Thomas is, in my estimation, the single greatest living American. I'm, I'm, I'm honestly not even sure who would be a close second. I mean, Thomas Sowell maybe comes to mind. Mm. I mean, you know, there's uh, uh, Ed Meese maybe. I mean, there are, there are a few others, but I just adore Clarence Thomas. I always have. I didn't clerk for the man, but I feel very fortunate to know many, perhaps even dozens of his former law clerks. Uh, the judge that I did clerk for on the Fifth Circuit is a former Clarence Thomas clerk, and I, I just admire him so much. And you know, for the viewers of this podcast who haven't done so already, I would strongly, strongly encourage you to go watch this fabulous 2020 documentary directed by Michael Pack. It was entitled Created Equal, mm. Clarence Thomas in His Own Words, I think is a, is a full title. And it's a lot of first-person interviews. He kind of takes you back to his extremely poor, impoverished upbringing in the Jim Crow South. English was actually not even his first language. Wow. Um, he was he, he was very rebellious growing, going up into high school, into college. He was actually briefly kind of like a Black Panther Marxist before kind of really kind of gaining his grounds, kind of coming back to his Catholic faith. Just a remarkable, remarkable story. But one... One problem with the career of Justice Thomas, not that it's his fault, obviously, is that he has oftentimes been in the minority. So what that means, a lot of his very meaningful, doctrinally impactful writings over the course of his 30-and-a-half-year tenure have come in dissent. Occasionally concurrence, but oftentimes in dissent. So this this Second Amendment case of New York State, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin, is really, based on my reading of Clarence Thomas's all of his works— Probably the most high-profile majority opinion that he has written to date. Now, hold your horses, um, because next term, actually, the court's going to hear affirmative action, mm. uh, and that's a long-time bugaboo of Justice Thomas's. Yep. So yep. we could get a, we could get a new career-defining majority right. opinion next <laughs> right. term, but until until that happens. This is just a great opinion, a 63-page opinion, really just walks through the history of, of, of opening concealed carry and kind of walks through the fact that this was a robust tradition um, and, and basically just says the constitutional text means what it says. The problem on the, on the Second Amendment is that the court heard two massive cases on it, a D.C. versus Heller case in 2008 and the McDonald versus City of Chicago case in 2010, and then they refused to hear a case yeah. for a solid decade. And yeah. the lower courts, especially the Ninth Circuit out in California, mm. created these ridiculous tests that had the effect of infringing upon rights. And Thomas dissented from the court's refusal to hear those cases. He accused the court of treating the Second Amendment as a second-class right. Mm. So this really is kind of poetic justice. This really is like his vindication of a key, key right. Because as he accurately says, the Second Amendment, no matter how much large swaths of the country, especially in urban enclaves, might hate it, is a right in the Bill of Rights just like any other. It's just as important as your right to free speech, 
uh, free exercise, religion, anything like that. So it's a really great opinion. What will be the uh, the broader implications of that decision? I, it's funny. I live here in California, and uh, right after that decision was made, our state attorney general changed the wording of what is required to apply for and receive a concealed carry permit. It's crazy. Um, but what will be the, the, the broader implications of that? So the broader implications for this case are actually somewhat narrow because there are actually only seven states out of 50. California is probably one of them, although I'm not certain. It probably is. New York State is certainly one of them. That's why this case was brought out of that there. There's, there's seven states that have what the opinion refers to as may issue yeah. laws or proper cause requirements. Right. And what that means is it, is it gives the bureaucrat total discretion to deny you a permit. So, you, you know, you mentioned Glenn Beck earlier. I went on Glenn's radio show, actually, the day that this, that this decision came out, and Glenn was telling me on air how when he lived in New York, he got denied a carry permit. And, you know, Glenn's like a pretty well-known figure. Right. You would think that he might want some sure. protection, actually, sure. especially walking around very liberal New York City, right? So uh, what, what, the, what the court says is that it, as far as these may issue proper cause requirement jurisdictions are concerned, that – that's not kosher. That will not fly, and that the bureaucrats actually have to give yeah. you a carry permit. Again, they can put in reasonable requirements. They can make you take, like, a training course. They can make you go to the firing range, practice, training, whatever. But the point is, after you complete – and that, that probably is actually the next litigation is what actually can those tests entail, but we're not quite there yet. But yeah. once you kind of fulfill the state's requirements, then they have to give you a permit. Right. But, for, but for 43 of the 50 states in the country, which are either shall-issue states yeah. or constitutional carry states – there's actually no change. So this, the, the ruling is actually limited to seven states and arguably the Washington, or, excuse me, arguably Washington D.C. But it is a big, big shift in yeah. those particular states, which happen to be home to a lot of people. States like right. California, right? And <laughs> right. It's crazy. Uh, I know m- many concealed carry permit holders here in California, and the process it takes over a year just to go through the process because of all of the things that have been put in place. That's after you've been approved to actually go through the process and you've demonstrated cause and need. Um, So really interesting. I'm glad they took this up. When you talk about, uh, back to Clarence Thomas, when you talk about the greatest living American, um, what, what makes an American great? I mean, this is something that I think all of us should aspire to. Not all of us will be Clarence Thomas or have the platform he does or the opportunities but what, what is it that causes you to look at him and say he's he's great? Maybe not even the greatest, but he's great. He's a great American. What is that? It's a great question. Look, um, July 4th weekend, right? I mean, I think what makes an American great – well, first of all, what makes a human being great, if I can like really philosophize yeah. for a second, obviously, yeah. is that you know you love your family, your friends, and, and that you fulfill your mutually interdependent bonds of loyalty, of duties, of reciprocal duties and obligations – that make us human in the first place, that you're a member of your, of your community, whether it's yeah. a civic community, a religious community. But I think what makes you a great American, and I'm, I'm kind of thinking in real time here, but I, I think what would make you a great American is if you properly intuit and understand that America is a fundamentally just country, mm. that this country is founded on fundamentally good concepts, going back to the Declaration of Independence, going back to the preamble of the Constitution, yeah. which very clearly enunciate yeah. the ends of government that this constitutional order was put together. You know, th- look, the Founding Fathers did an extremely courageous thing. I mean, when they signed that Declaration of Independence, when they, when they pledged their, their honor, their lives, their sacred honor— they knew exactly what they were doing. I mean, they were literally putting their lives in, in, in danger, and they thought it was worth it mm. to institute a, 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 an experiment 
in self-government that had simply had never been tried before in the modern history or really kind of to date to an extent in, 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 in political theory. So I think if you understand that America is so great and that it is worth preserving against our enemies, both foreign and domestic, that's, that's really what makes you a great American. And again, Clarence Thomas's jurisprudence does that on basically a yeah. daily basis, I think. That's awesome. Thank you for that. Uh, Josh, where can people continue to read your work and follow your podcast? Sure. So you can find me on Twitter, Josh underscore Hammer. My podcast is just called The Josh Hammer Show. So check it out. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your yeah. podcast. And I also run the Newsweek op-ed section. So you can check us out at newsweek.com slash opinion. Awesome. Josh Hammer. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Anytime. Many of our veterans feel they need to fight their battles alone. This self-isolation has led to the staggering statistic of more than 20 veterans taking their lives every day. The mission of Mighty Oaks is to eradicate the veteran suicide epidemic and help our warriors change their legacies. We've been able to help over 4,000 veterans and first responders by equipping them with the tools they need to live the lives they were created to live. Our faith-based, peer-to-peer approach has one of the highest success rates of any program available today, offering hope and understanding to those who need it most. By aligning their lives to biblical principles, these men and women are able to lead their families, their communities, and our nation. It's your generosity that can make a difference in the lives of the men and women who have fought for our country and our freedoms. Now that they're home, don't let them fight alone. Learn more at MightyOaksPrograms.org. Once again, appreciate Josh's insights. Please follow him uh, on Newsweek. Listen to his podcast. He has great guests on. But as you have just heard, and if you've been following the show, you've heard this before. His analysis, his breakdown uh, is crystal clear. This is one thing that is is uh, so helpful when he comes on our show. Uh, he, he's on a lot of shows. He does a lot of interviews, of course. But he, he breaks things down in a way that is, is clear, that is understandable, and that is actionable. We can take hold of that. And uh, I trust that you will follow him. Please do that. If you are not yet subscribed to this podcast, make sure that you are. And you have the chance right now. If you're not subscribed, you're listening somewhere, subscribe wherever it is you're listening from. And uh, that would be awesome. Then take some time. Go over to YouTube. You can find our YouTube channel there. Look for the Situation Report. You'll find our YouTube channel there. Fantastic channel, not just because it's our show and not just because I'm biased, but because we have an amazing catalog of guests that have come on, uh, conversations that have been had, discussions that are very important to what we're dealing with right now. You'll find all of those there. Subscribe, hit the notification bell. That lets you know when more content comes online. Share, leave us comments. We'd love to communicate with you there. Thank you for joining me today. Look forward to talking to you next time. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.